You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey everyone, for this week's episode, I'm doing something a little different. I generally don't talk to artists about their own work. But in this case, the opportunity was just too good to pass up. The photographer Steven Seidenberg makes beautiful photographs that are both visually and conceptually striking. But what really hooked me in was that his recently published collection documents a story that I was unfamiliar with. Longtime listeners probably already know I'm largely a modernist at heart. I've read so many accounts of the early to mid-20th century and artistic development and history, but I was not familiar with this little incident funded by the Marshall Plan that seemed like it was set up to fail. I don't want to give too much away, but Seidenberg's books, Architecture of Silence, Abandoned Lives of the Italian South, is filled with haunting and yet beautiful images documenting the ruins. And the companion book, Distant Voices, on Steven Seidenberg's Architecture of Silence, is a collection of essays from historians, critics, philosophers, and others giving us the context to make sense of the photographs. In this episode, I spoke with Steven Seidenberg and Carolyn White, who edited Distant Voices, so they could explain the history behind the ruins and share some insights into the photographic process. If you want to see more of Steven's work, go to stevenseidenberg.com or, of course, check the show notes where I'll link to his site and provide links where you can purchase both books. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, weekly art history for all ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today I'm excited. I actually have two guests. We're breaking format just a little bit. I have the photographer, Steven Seidenberg, and Carolyn White, who have worked collaboratively on two books, correct? One is a photography book, and one is a collection of essays about sort of the ruins of what was left after something didn't go so well on the Marshall Plan. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, uh, Marshall Plan funded a program uh, that was implemented by the newly formed Italian Republic after the war, post-war. Yeah. 
And I was excited about this because longtime listeners know I am like a World War II nerd. I am just such the modernist at heart. I've done episodes, made reference to the Ghost Army and all sorts of stuff that happened around that era, the post-war era. I feel like that middle of the 20th century was such a critical time in at least Western art history. And so much happened shifting our perspectives. And when I saw that you had a book that was documenting some of that stuff, I I, I was absolutely fascinated. So I guess to, to get into this, normally I would be doing all the heavy lifting on the background part, but it seems kind of ridiculous when you quite literally wrote the book on the topic. So... <laughs> If I can just get started, your book is about the ruins of the, and you're going to have to help me out, Reforma Fondiaria. Fondiaria. Um, And that was the post-war land reform policy in, and and I can't get this, Basilicata and Puglia. Puglia. I I suddenly changed to a different imitation of an accent. I don't know where (laughs) that second one came from. (laughs) <laughs> Can you give us the right pronunciation for that? Yes, it's Basilicata in Puglia. It was also implemented in Calabria and in in parts of Tuscany as well. So, um, yeah. It was, so through through uh, poor agri- what were then uh, quite uh, poor agricultural regions, historically uh, dominated by large estate level culture. Uh, agriculture, rather. Uh, and uh, I mean, Carolyn, you can come in. Essentially, uh, these big estates that before the war had been the the centerpiece of traditional agriculture in, in Italy with uh, large land holdings controlled by essentially an arist- a kind of aristocracy uh, and peasants, so to speak, village-level peasants who would come and work in the harvests and the plantings and things like that. Um, and uh, after the war, there was uh, a, a movement to uh, redistribute land generally throughout Italy from these big estates, uh, many of whom, many of which had been fascist-aligned, um, and the there was a, a large communist movement in particular, a, very, a left-wing movement and the, commun- the, the very active and important communist party post in post-war Italy was arguing for this kind of land reform. And uh, the, the allies and the Americans in particular took this and other parts of that left agenda and appropriated them to uh, policies of the newly formed republic in part to prevent the communists from taking power or from uh, being elected, I should say. Uh, And they did so in a way, though, that was uh, fairly destructive, as it turns out. So the money came from the Marshall Plan, or much of it did. uh, And then the Italian government started implementing the policies. Okay, Uh, so and that's where I want to I want to 
jump in and ask a little question because as I'm understanding it, it sounds to me like in the post-war era, it's almost like the shift away from feudalism. The the peasants are no longer just working the land. They wanted um, the ordinary people to have an ownership stake in that land, right? And That's so they're correct. they're dividing it up. And, you know, maybe it's just the lefty in me. I'm sitting here thinking, well, how could this go wrong? Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> How did it go wrong? You've alluded to, we've already said there are ruins there that you were documenting and you've, yes. you've said it all fell apart. So where did this go off the rails? Well, it went off the rails in many directions. There were a lot of things that kind of came together to make things go wrong. It was underfunded. It was overly ambitious in terms of the building that people did. They spent all the money on land improvement and building these thousands and thousands of houses. And of course, they also saw a long-term benefit in having this go wrong. So once the land was distributed to um, to these people, they had two free years to live there and work the land. And then that third year, they had to start paying rent. And Mm. there was never irrigation. There was never electricity, despite the promises that were made. And so it was impossible for people to survive on the uh, basically seven acres of land that they were given by the Italian government. They couldn't make it work. And so the Italian government benefited ultimately because people abandoned the farms, moved north, and the land reverted back to the state. And subsequently, the state then sold the land to uh, these large corporate agricultural interests. So there was a 20, essentially, Italy managed in a 20-year period to move uh, in these regions from feudal agriculture to modern corporate agribusiness uh, with with the casualties of the cultures of all of these places uh, being being lost, all of these village level cultures lost, all of these families scattered, and all of those laborers, those people, those potential landowners, often moving north to man the factories for the industrial, the new industrialization of the north for car making and other kinds of industrial enterprise. So it's feudalism by another name, essentially. Um, and I, I'm I'm just curious, what is it about this story that drew your attention? You know, why why did this one jump out at you? Because I'm going to be honest, I I like happy stuff, and I'm 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 thinking about like ruins and stuff. The, the, I mean, yeah. it it's a story to be told, but why why did this appeal to you? Well, I'll tell you, I you know. Uh, in some ways, I think that, uh, at least for me and my art practice, um, and in the way I understand uh, art practice in general, um, and in particular photography, uh, is it's a politically activated genre automatically by virtue of its relationship, at least lens-based photography. Uh, there are obviously kinds of photography that aren't lens-based, alternative process, mm-hmm. and things like that. And um, I am, I'm interested in uh, in the aesthetically moving, but I'm also interested in understanding art practice as consequential, semantically consequential, in the case of photography in particular, um, and politically consequential. 
And uh, so, you know, it's, in fact, you know, happy stuff is not motivating in particular. It's not demotivating necessarily, but it's not an intrinsic motivation by any means. Um, I hope that there's uh, a kind of pathos, but also uh, a sense of sublimity that comes, which is a happy sense, I think, in that mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, a kind of pleasure, but it's not a simple pleasure. It's a complex pleasure, let's say. Yeah, I I mean, I, I get that statement that, you know, sort of everything is inherently on some level a political statement, even my choice to, you know, paint a seagull playing a guitar is on some level, you know, <laughs> a statement about my priorities. Um, but I, I think you're right. There is a simple, pl- like looking through the book um, and you, the way that you frame the shots, there is something that I was really surprised at how visually just like aesthetically pleasing the photographs were. Like I'm looking at, you know, the way that you framed things, your use of um, your use of door frames and window frames to create that juxtaposition of the vivid, bright, bold countryside, you know, framed by these ruins and other stuff like that. I mean, we can get into the weeds a little bit later, but I I think you're right. There is something that is pleasing in some way about these dilapidated structures that surprised me because it's not the kind of thing that immediately draws my attention. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll put a finer point on it in the sense that, you know, the structures themselves are not so pleasing. There's something pleasing about the images of the structures, which I take as a very, as a successful, as a, uh, that's a, uh, makes me, pleases me that you feel that way and that people feel that way in seeing the images. Uh, And there is something for me uh, when I choose subjects for my work in finding um, the unseen, the unspoken, you know, in other projects of mine, things that are structures that are liminal in the urban landscape or in the rural landscape, or things that are uh, seen as as blighted and and uh, and that people you're you're also uh, right in a, in in your suggestion that uh, or your your allusion to the the limited. Uh, amount of time people want to spend thinking about and talking about painful subjects. And so uh, this is something that uh, part of what was ultimately so intriguing about these structures um, was how difficult it was for people to talk about them in the regions uh, and how much, how shameful it was for them, even though to a large extent this is true in many places, they were the victims of this policy and the victims of these of of this movement that or the way in which this movement was structured to disenfranchise them. Uh, and uh, but people respond to being victimized with shame often. And uh, that's what we see still, but Younger generations, of course, can be a little bit have a little bit more distance and can can try to talk about what their grandparents and parents went through in these in these moments. Um, 
I'm sorry. I just I, I want to unpack that a little bit because the the teacher in me, as I think about like my art curriculum, I'm always talking about cultural context in which things were created and what art reveals about the day to day lives and the experiences of people. And as I'm understanding what you're talking about, the the way that people see a shame in this, the way I perceive this as an outsider. I was thinking this is an example of how, you know, if you don't build the infrastructure that people need to to live and to sustain life, you know, giving them one resource but not adequate resource, like the resource of the land, but not the resources of the infrastructure and, and everything to build a full, complete life around it. Nobody can succeed under those circumstances. And to me, it reads as a government failing. But you are saying that that the people on the ground felt it almost as a personal failing and point of shame, like they were given an opportunity but couldn't make it work. Is that am, am I understand that correctly? I think I think that it goes back and forth uh, between thinking about it as an opportunity they were given opportunity they were giving that they couldn't capitalize on and being duped into thinking it was an opportunity when mm. in fact they should have known better. Um, and because uh, in particular in the Italian say in, in Basilicata and Puglia and Calabria, um, the Italian South it has been um, largely discriminated against and broadly discriminated against by the cultural areas north of Rome, let's say, mm -hmm. south of Rome and north of Rome, remain really distinct in that respect. Uh, and often the racism that you you see in Italy uh, uh, around north-south uh, mm -hmm. distinctions uh, is now much more broadly the racism that you see around new migrants and other and other people coming through who are not uh, who don't meet the the particular version of Northern European yeah. whiteness. Um, and so there, they, there is a sense in the South of like, I can't believe we, they took advantage of, of us again. They told us they were going to do something and they didn't. What a surprise, you know, uh, they, mm. there is a, um, but at the same time, of course, what, what we know to be the case is that the, that they were living in such extraordinary poverty already that many of them, for many of them, they did think, well, this probably won't won't work because they'll probably be. This is probably them taking advantage of us again. But we have nothing to lose, essentially, or we have so little to lose. Yeah, um, I mean, when you're drowning, you don't wait around for the right color of life jacket. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And yeah, uh, there's a documentary um, in Italian from the period that shows government officials bestowing these spaces onto the the population and they interview them you know are you going to go are you excited and one of the women responds of, in italian you know of course i'm going to go i live in a cave <laughs> <laughs> oh i i feel bad laughing at that <laughs> yeah you know, but they they say they will have gas, we'll have water. You know yeah. what? You know, it'll be it'll be better, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, one thing I think that is just to um, stay on this for a moment that is interesting that Steve alluded to is 
now that there are multiple generations separating the inhabitants of those spaces, well, number one, people seem to think that people really didn't live there at all. Um, and that's one thing that I think that the photographs truly reveal is that people did make those spaces into their homes, however temporarily they were. So you have furniture and other kinds of decor and the the paint, the um, other ways that they made them into domestic spaces. So that's one thing that's quite interesting. Um, and then you also have people who have heard about the time that their families may have spent in those houses now. So whereas this idea that it was just this huge failure, no one lived there, now you can start to see in conjunction with this work, um, more stories about why it's interesting to people, why it is part of the, the oral heritage of a family about this their stint in those fields before they abandon it to move north or move back into their village. So I think, again, with the passage of time and with this kind of um, this kind of photography, it, it helps to see the time as it was, not just as this, this failure, mm. even though at the same time, it really underscores how many people were put in really difficult situations and may, had to make the difficult choice to leave. Yeah. And I think one of the things I really appreciate about your book, or I, I should say books, because it's it's essentially two companion pieces. And for listeners, I'm going to have links in the show notes if you want to buy a copy. But we've got the one book of the architecture of silence, which is the, the photography book where we can see it all laid out. And then you also have the distant voices book, which is the collection of essays. And I, I love that you sought out diverse perspectives on that like you you had interviews from like architects and critics and and as you've already said you've talked to people living there for generations I, I'm curious you know we've talked about the the one lens of like uh you know the people who lived there and their families and I can't believe we got fooled again kind of perspective did other people with different lenses talking about it, maybe a little bit removed from history, did they see something different? Are there commonalities, common threads you saw through the descriptions of it or any different insights you noticed there? Well, I think one thing that we were fortunate to be able to do was to bring perspectives from not just different kinds of occupations and um positions in terms of how people might interact with photographs, but also it the the contributors come from many different places. So we have many Italians, some from the South, some from the North, some from Rome, some living abroad. And we have other people from Canada, from the US. Um, and one of the things that that I think is quite interesting is how often the Italians say, both in this print, in print and in person, is that sometimes it takes someone from somewhere else to show us our history, not to hmm. you know, pat, pat ourselves on the back per se, but there is an advantage of being from the outside coming in where you're able to see something um, valuable to explore. 
And I think that this, even the selection of these sites that you were talking about before, they, they don't, they didn't seem interesting to many people in Italy because they were so familiar, but to Steve and to me driving past them when we first encountered them, they were something that, that to us demanded further investigation. Whereas people who have lived you know, just a couple miles from these fields with so many houses, just don't think of them as anything but, you know, little blips from the past. And that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to add, because I know it's something that uh, a part of the way the, the, um, the questions that you have about the project, just the, the in terms of the, uh, composition of the pieces of the of the photographs mm -hmm. uh, that that part of the way in which I choose a photographic project is with the notion that the way I see through the camera will reveal the world anew um, mm -hmm. and will transform the world in a certain way uh, whether that's has a historical consequence or an aesthetic consequence or a material consequence in any particular way in terms of how people walk through their everyday lives. Um, it's uh, the, the photograph is about seeing and understanding how to trans translate one's uh, ability to see the world in a particular way through the camera. That is so that is so interesting to me just because like I'm building off like the the connection there to you know just the way that I approach photography with my students as as we talked about earlier um I before I started recording I alluded to the fact that photography is a medium that I struggled with because I feel like photography is a medium that is relatively easy to start at and to get to a very basic level of competence. And then you have to study and work so much to notice any improvement from that base level at <laughs> all. You know, it's really frustrating, but I, I love that idea that someone who actually knows photography talks about seeing the world through that photographic lens and transforming our view on it. Because that's one of the few bits of advice that I give to my students. And it's, it's really validating for me personally. This, I know you think this podcast is about you, but it's really about stroking my ego. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but like my very first photo lesson with students and I'm, I'm, I teach elementary, so I'm talking to, you know, eight year olds. I, I'll say, I want you to look through this camera's lens and without any outside manipulations, I want you to look at something from such an extreme angle that it looks abstract, that I can't recognize it. It takes me a moment to figure out what it is and also make it look good. Cause you know, I can hold it up against the wall and it's all black and it looks abstract and I have no idea what it is, but to make <laughs> it look good too is the, the challenge. But I, I love that idea of your photographs and that fresh perspective. I mean, like you said, people in Canada and other parts of the world are seeing what is really fascinating about this. And I, I think that's a good reminder for all of us. Sometimes you need a little bit of distance to get that objectivity to, to really process and understand and get that outside perspective. Yes. Yeah, for sure. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, if I can shift a little bit, we've already started to naturally segue there because this is a space where I like to use an audio medium to get into the visual arts. Um, mm-hmm. Your photos are absolutely beautiful. Loved looking through the book. Um, but I, I do wanna I do want to know, how do you go about? composing your shots you've already alluded to you know you want something that you can see from a new angle or reveal something about the world but how do you when you're looking just like through the viewfinder Mm -hmm. how are you deciding what's the right angle for this you get what i'm saying like how do you compose your shots how do you what's what's the the steps you're going through there i mean the um you know, I'm thinking about it within, firstly, of course, in terms of the parameters of the camera that I'm using, what I think I can do with it, what I think this uh, capture can result in. That is to say, for me, and I would say this to aspiring photographers, you need to print. You need to print your photos. If you don't print your photos, there's a point you can't progress past in the way that you understand what you're doing as a photographer, even if your ultimate goal is to only work with images online. Uh, Printing them changes your relationship to the understanding how the photograph, the, the moment of instant of capture, objectifies the world and what it means to translate the world from a three-dimensional space to a flat space, what it means compositionally, and what it means uh, when one has the object of the photo in hand. So I'm always shooting, uh, thinking thinking about how I'm going to print 
what I'm shooting, which depends and, you know, shooting towards a particular way of printing. So you're looking at it from a materials perspective. You're thinking like my aperture is rated at this and I've got this speed of film or whatever, or the sensitivity. And, you know, you're yeah. thinking about like how the silver halides will react and the grain size and all of that stuff in the photo. Or are you thinking of it more in terms of like, well, I want it to have this emotional resonance. And so I'm going to get it darker, lower the exposure time, or is, you know, like, is it about just like what physically can happen because of the, the depth of field and because of all of those material consequences, or is it more that sort of, is it a gut level? Like I just, I'm inspired. I see this and I've got to capture it and it, it just hits me on that emotional resonance or is it a combination well, it, it is, I think, primarily about emotional resonance, but emotional resonance happens within the context of the, mm-hmm. as it does in painting and other forms of of, of composition, uh, in the context and the and through the parameters of the medium you're using. And those parameters are all the things you're talking about, whether it's film or digital capture mm-hmm. or what have you, and thinking about the ways in which the photograph can uh, and... Uh, and the parameters of making a photograph can affect uh, the emotional uh, content of the photo and the impact of the photo and and also the relationship of one photo to another. So um, I often shoot in series uh, and sort of with the notion that having this conceptual framework in which a series of photos is placed can uh, heighten or amplify the emotional content, the emotional resonance of every, each individual photo. Um, even when they're taken out of that context, it can remain with you. Um, the, the, this sense of having uh, achieved the project, completed the project in relationship to this conceptual framework, whatever it may be. So now... As I looked through the book, like I said, there were a number of photos that that were very striking to me that I I'm looking through and I I just I I had to pause and take a moment and look more carefully at. I'm curious, is there a favorite of yours? I mean, I I imagine you take so many. Um it's it's got to be hard to choose a baby, but like is there yeah. anything that that just like really you felt like yes, this is the one that represents what I was trying to do here. Well, you know, I mean, there, there are too many for me <laughs> It's a, in that way. I think that in, in many respects, the, um, there is, uh, it, it, it's such a difficult, uh, project to photograph interiors, uh, with bright exteriors, mm-hmm. um, without, uh, in a source of artificial light. And so uh, some of those, I think, can uh, uh, have a really uncanny character so that the scenes through the windows, for instance, uh, to which you alluded earlier, the scenes of the outside uh, almost have, um, because of the the intrinsic shift in resolution that happens with brightness and having to bring down highlights that are that have problems with uh, being overexposed. Um, so I'm aware that that can reduce resolution in a way that gives those 
parts of the photograph a dreamy or painterly character, as though they're paintings. So that's one of the things that I would be shooting towards in this project, recognizing that I can make the scene outside and the scene inside. I can give them a relative poignancy um, through various techniques that will uh, that I think is emotionally uh, resonant for people when they see the photographs. Yeah, I got to say, I, I'm listening to that. The thing that really perked my ear that surprised me was you said that you don't have an artificial light as you're shooting through the window. I'm looking I'm looking at the book right now, page 26, 27, where you've got, uh, it's like a purplish wall with like, I can see like mold and plaster and stuff. And it's got like yeah. the shutters framing that window and yes. the brightness of the landscape through that window. I I admit I'm not good at photography. I, I'm not an expert, but I, I've dabbled enough to know that if I tried to take that shot, you know, we're talking it. it the walls are going to be almost black. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's just to get the the lighting and contrast right. Um, I I I I was blown away to hear that you did that without a secondary light source. Yeah. Because yeah. because my first thought was you must have had something so that it's not excessively like backlit or whatever you might want to how however right. you might want to describe it. Um, yeah. But you're right. There is a painterly quality to it. There's there's something about it that I was really drawn to because I I'm always trying to be the little bit of the the optimist and i think there's something so nice about the focal point that grabs my attention is this beautiful landscape and there's something visually satisfying about symmetrical balance you know i i absolutely love that in in the framing of the shot and it, it feels to me like a magritte painting which I I've got a little bit of soft, a soft spot for like my um, the cover art for my podcast is shamelessly ripped off a Magritte composition. But um, <laughs> the, that photograph that you captured, I, I think it's all, all the more stunning to to realize that that was done without the tricks that I would have immediately gone to. Um, I think of Chuck Close who said like the magic is more impressive when you understand the work that went into it. Yeah, it's been, it's a, uh, there are, it's difficult to do. It takes many, uh, and it's also a single shot. It's not a composite uh, shot, which people often think. Um, and uh, it's sort of under, again, the having a, a clear idea of the limitations of your medium mm -hmm. allows you and your tools allows you to uh, do extraordinary things with them, things that people uh, haven't done before. Well, hat is off to you on that because I, I wouldn't have known the the exposure time, the film speed, whatever variables you're working with. I don't know if there's a filter on the lens or what, but not. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful image. Thank you, thank you. And there, there are the all uh, and the cover images, of course. Another similar image of mm -hmm. an interior exterior. There are a few others, um, but as you as you say, you know, in a way, this is a book about about frames within frames, the compositional frame of the photograph itself, but then the frames within the doorways, the windows, the uh, the pathways in and out 
that um, recapitulate the sense of pathos, I think, of entering uh, a house that was never quite able to um, fully realize its its potential for to to let people live in it, to have mm-hmm. people uh, to have people thrive within it. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's one of the one of of the contributors, uh, 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 cultural critic and journalist and poet in Italy named Maria Teresa Carbone says in the essay book, it's it's um, it's an abandoned each house is an abandoned dream. And uh, mm. that's part of what the part of the the nature of the project for me is to is to recognize that and recognize that sacrifice and also the the dreamlike character of it uh, of these spaces. Yeah, that's a that is a beautiful and slightly haunting way of describing it. But I think I think a, an apt description. And I think um, just to to wrap up the the one thing I always like to do, you know, first season I would I would wrap up with just the takeaways from everything and and to summarize um, with all of this, I like to end on a positive. So since I've got a, a, a photographer who is, you know, in my estimation, absolutely brilliant at what he's doing i would i would ask what advice would you give aspiring photographers if someone's looking to up their photo game whether it's to get better instagram pictures or they want to become a professional photography documenting the world what tips would you give as a starting point um i would say and uh, I would well first let me qualify that I don't you I happen to not use social media at all so <laughs> I don't know what it would be to what makes someone a better Instagram photographer but uh, I suppose they're just posting photographs on Instagram as opposed to some other place um, so uh, uh, within that uh, if you if they have the wherewithal to make prints I think that's a useful thing to do but if not to understand. Uh, the photograph compositionally, maybe firstly, even in relationship to painting, to see that the same techniques that happen in in the same modes of manipulation and modes of of emotional resonance a painter can make happen in on a flat plane are similar to what happens for a photographer. And then photography also shares something though with what a sculptor is working with. That is, you have this, you have to deal with the way in which a three-dimensional world functions, the way in which exposure functions happens in three dimensions, not on a flat surface, even though you're transposing it onto a flat surface. So in some way, I think the best is to look at as much art as you can, identify the things in art practice and of course, in the practices of other photographers whose work you admire, identify aspects that uh, of that work. Maybe not. If you, maybe you can't identify the compositional particulars, but you can identify the emotional particulars that draw you to that work, and start to think about how you can find that in your in your own practice 
and your own way of seeing even before you move to the camera and to making others see what you see. I, yeah, I, I cannot second that more heartily. I think that is a really beautiful way of describing it. And once again, just to bring things full circle, perfectly suited for my personal needs and what I needed to hear as a (laughs) not particularly talented artist to know to intellectualize things, which is the only way that I have acquired any skill, understanding the material science of the process and what is happening and how that can be manipulated as well as the, the, the structure and of how, a composition is arranged those principles of design of balance and contrast and emphasis and you know the rhythm and movement and and how those things are structured just understanding the underlying structure of the arts i think is beautiful and that's the goal that i have for this show so everybody should be listening to my entire back catalog um, <laughs> <laughs> In all seriousness, though, I I cannot thank you enough. The books are absolutely gorgeous. Like I said, I'm going to link it in the show notes um, for anybody who wants to buy a copy. But um, once again, thank you for giving me your time and your expertise, Stephen Seidenberg and Carolyn White. Thank you so much. much. It's been a pleasure. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.